0: Hello and welcome to Wisdom and Productivity, the podcast of Dr. Efrain Martinez. I am a principal in search of wisdom and I have found productivity to be a great tool for success. Today, I have the great and distinguished honor of interviewing Dr. Tori Trust, who is an Associate Professor of Learning Technology in the Department of Education and Curriculum Studies, in the College of Education at the University of Massachusetts at Amherst. During her interview, we will discuss her own wisdom and productivity and the world of CHAT-GPT and education. Dr. Tori Trust, who are you?
1: <laughs> Good morning, and uh, well, who am I? That's a big question, but uh, as you mentioned, I'm Associate Professor of Learning Technology I'm a teacher, a writer, a researcher, and I look at how teaching and learning can be enriched and enhanced with technology, both for teacher learning and for student learning. So that's my main focus for research, teaching, and leadership. And on a personal side, I love travel and I love sports. So that's kind of a me in a nutshell.
0: <laughs> Wondering, where is the, the, your favorite place where you have traveled?
1: Oh, um, <clears throat> it's between Iguazu Falls in Brazil and Argentina and uh, Costa Rica are kind of, I would go back there in a heartbeat, either of those places.
0: <laughs> Beautiful. Thank you for sharing that. So, uh, Tori, can you please walk us through your professional trajectory up to this point?
1: Yeah, so it started back in my undergraduate program. I went to UC San Diego and I was a visual arts and film major. And I thought I was going to be working in Hollywood someday as, you know, a big movie producer. And I did an internship in Hollywood and thought, nope, this is not my career. It was my junior year. So I was like, well, it's too late to change my major at this point. Uh, What else am I good at? What else do I like to do? And at that time, I was a a resident advisor. I was very involved on campus and a lot of different organizations. And so I ended up moving into student affairs at UC San Diego after I graduated and realizing how much I love to be in the field of education. Uh, But around the same time, UC San Diego experienced uh, race riots and a lot of issues regarding equity, um, especially for black students on campus. And I started researching that more and thinking, You know, what can I do to help improve or support this issue? And realizing that K 12 schools was, you know, the area to focus on so that students are better prepared by the time they get to college. So I left my job at UC San Diego, packed up, moved across the country with my husband to Washington, D.C. to work in one of the lowest performing elementary schools in the country. And um, it was quite an enlightening experience. And through that experience I really recognized the power of technology combined with good teaching and then I thought okay well if I go you know I was, I was at the time I was getting my master's degree in educational technology at San Diego State and, and really seeing the potential benefits when combined with good teaching and then I was sharing that with my colleagues I was trying to like help improve teaching and learning with technology and it my ideas and advice weren't really well taken up Um, I ended up, you know, thinking, well, if I get a PhD, people will listen to me, (laughs) which spoiler alert is not the case still. (laughs) But um, I went to a PhD, you know, I, I went to UC Santa Barbara to get my doctorate degree in education with a focus on teaching and learning and exploring teacher learning specifically with technology. And from there, I got my very first academic job at the University of Massachusetts Amherst, which... I am still at today. So I've, I've progressed from assistant professor to associate professor. And right now I'm on my trajectory to go up for promotion to full professor. Oh,
0: congratulations. <laughs> um, the, the world academia um, um, uh, is, I uh, have heard, right? That is published or perish. Uh, what has been your experience uh, in that realm?
1: Oh yeah, absolutely. I mean, you are... I would say I I first heard when I joined the University of Massachusetts Amherst and the new faculty orientation that 80 percent of your time should be spent on publishing and 20 percent on teaching and 20 percent on service, which anyone who does math knows that's well beyond 100 percent. And it kind of feels like that is that you're supposed to be publishing nonstop. But, you know, I love teaching and I love putting time into teaching and finding that right balance between high quality teaching and high quality research and publishing but also service to the field and the department and college and leadership it's um it's an amazing amount of time and finding those boundaries and figuring out how you can be productive is absolutely essential in the field because a lot of people can get lost in one way or another focus too much on teaching and not enough on research or too much on research but not enough on teaching and service so um, it's important to, you know, f- get a lot of mentorship and support and figure out that pathway really early on, because by the time you go up for tenure, it's too late to, you know, make that change. That's, you know, that's what they're looking at.
0: Beautiful. Thank you for the great advice. So uh, like in Back to the Future, Tori, if you could go back to any of the positions you have held in the past, what will the Tory of today tell the Tory of then?
1: Oh, I think I would tell my past self, you don't have to please everyone. I think that's, you know, it's really in any job that I have been in, but especially in academia, especially when you're starting out, it's like, you're the yes person, you know, sure, I'll serve on this committee. Sure, I'll do this. Uh, Yes, I'll help with this. Yes, I'll join this collaboration opportunity. And uh, sometimes, actually, a lot of times that can really come at the detriment of your mental and physical health is you end up spending so much time trying to do projects and extra service and all of these other things that you don't have enough time to do the things that really bring you joy outside of work. And so I I really, um, you know, and there's individuals who take advantage of that. And so that's a really tough thing to learn in that Uh, academic field but I think in any career is if you're always trying to be the people pleaser there will be individuals who will make sure they take advantage of that and you know in the last couple years I've really learned to get better about setting those boundaries really saying no and trying to figure out you know who I am and what my pathway is and when I do say yes making sure that that's aligned with my vision and goals for my career
0: great advice learn how to say no Thank you so much, Tori. So let's talk about books. Uh, if you will have to gift two books, one fiction, one nonfiction to a loved one, what will those be? Well,
1: the Harry Potter book series is really uh, what got me into reading. Interestingly, as a, as a kid, I did not like reading at all. And my parents were both teachers like how can we what can we do to get tori to read and they tried everything and at one point my dad went to a librarian and she had suggested this new series called harry potter and so my my dad bought the book wrote a little nice note in the cover like and then put it on my bookshelf and i actually did not read it until two years later i had met my really close friend and she was obsessed with the series and i was like well I'll give it a try and ever since then I you know I went to the opening premiere of all the movies and even my husband and I when we were honeymooning in uh, all over Central and South America the seventh book came out and it came out first in English all over Central and South America so we went got the seventh book in El Salvador and read it by candlelight for like I don't know 20 hours straight overnight. So that book to me was what really launched my interest and excitement in reading. And thank goodness it did, because in academia, you are reading nonstop all day, every day. Mm -hmm. Um, In terms of nonfiction, one that has really shaped my life is Harvest for Hope by Jane Goodall. Jane Goodall's been a a huge influence and role model in my life in the way that power of helping others connect with the environments and taking care of the world that we live in. And that book in particular really got me interested in how do I think about food and nutrition and ways of taking care of myself while also making sure I'm, you know, taking care of the environment, the lands, the animals around me. And so a lot of my reading outside of work time is on nutrition and health because I'm just fascinated by that subject.
0: Beautiful, thank you. Reading is is such a a luxury. Uh, Tori, um, who is or who are your biggest influences?
1: So I'll start with my family uh, because I come from a whole family of educators, uh, both uh, my parents, my dad was a high school science teacher for 30 something years. My mom was a science resource teacher for San Diego City Schools for many years before she passed away. And my sister uh, is, was an elementary teacher, and now she's a reading specialist in elementary schools. And my husband is an elementary technology teacher. And every single one of them is so creative, um, always engaged in learning and thinking about how can I teach better to improve the way I support my students um, and, and have this really unique knack for connecting with students. And that's what I really feel education is about, is building those relationships being innovative and constantly learning, so they've always influenced me throughout my life. Um, in terms of professionally, my two colleagues, Dr. Jeffrey Carpenter at Elon University and Dr. Daniel Kretka, at um, University of North Texas, I reached out to them on Twitter one day when I started my job, my very first week at the University of Massachusetts, Amherst, and I was completely lost in, how do I get started with setting up a research agenda? And I basically messaged them on Twitter, we had never met before. And I was kind of like, will you be my academic besties? <laughs> like, will you do research with me? Okay. And they are, um, you know, so incredible in their thinking and their writing and their support of me in so many ways. We have published several articles that have, you know, hundreds of citations. We've won several awards together. They were the reason I went up for tenure early because we just really published so much and got our names out in the field. Um, so they've been an absolutely huge influence in my life as well.
0: Beautiful. Thank you so much. And how do you address this thing that we all have called imposter syndrome when we feel that, oh, that's, I'm not good enough or I cannot do that. That's only for others, not for me. How do you address this?
1: You know, I think that's so common in the field of academia. Uh, and I, I see that in graduate students, but I also see that in faculty And i experienced this with chat GPT and all of a sudden people are calling me an expert in this brand new artificial intelligence technology where I don't have a computer science background. Uh, And I really had to learn everything I could about artificial intelligence and computer science in like a week to be able to talk on it and I think. Um, there's a couple ways I go about that. First is just establishing my boundaries in terms of what I can speak on. That really helps me. So when I talk on chat GPT, I say, as a reminder, I'm not a computer scientist, but I am a person who has expertise in education technology and critical interrogation of, critical, of education technology. So I can bring this lens to this topic and that helps me feel confident in being able to talk without feeling like, oh my gosh, I don't know how to speak on this, or I feel like a, you know, fake. Um, and then, you know, also thinking about the importance of, of taking risks, you know, with imposter syndrome, it's like, you get so scared, you don't even try. And with my students, you know, I'm constantly trying new ideas and things that either other people have never tried or that have only tried once. And I'm like, let me give it a go. And I fail often. And then I apologize to the students, and they see me as human. And then I say, "Let's figure this out together." And so, you know, I think imposter syndrome—we often feel like we have to have all the expertise and not realize like it's okay to mess up, to apologize, to learn together, uh, to take those risks, and really set those boundaries of you know where your expertise um, ends and where you should be talking and where you shouldn't be talking about a topic, um, and and being okay with like let's go look this up. Or I don't know. I think that's something academia people don't know how to say, is I don't know. And that's totally understandable. So those are kind of some of my tips for dealing with imposter syndrome.
0: (laughs) Beautiful. And let's get into the chat GPT questions. But before that, let's recognize the Teach Better community.
1: This podcast is a proud member of the Teach Better podcast network.
0: Better today, better tomorrow, and the podcast to get you there. Explore more podcasts at www.teachbetterpodcastnetwork.com. Now let's
1: get back to the episode.
0: So I remember when uh, ChatGPT started coming through my horizons, um, everybody went straight to, oh, students are going to plagiarize, this is bad, they're not going to be able to think, etc., etc. And then all of a sudden, these Google Slides, um that you put out there went like a storm everywhere and i was fascinated because it was like the first time i was able to better understand what the heck was all this about uh and um i have a few questions that of course i implemented the supports chat gpt to create this question so let's let's go at it tori for those that don't know what is chat gpt
1: Well, ChatGPT is one of the most advanced artificial intelligence chatbots to date. It is a large language model, which basically means that it is using complex math and calculations and a huge data set that it's been trained on, more than 300 billion words scraped from the internet to predict which words best go together to create a plausible sounding response to user inputted prompt or question. And the key there is it's predicting which words go together and it's not Google, it's not Wikipedia, it's not out there to provide factual information, it's trying to guess what the best response is to a user generated prompt and actually is, you know, taking the world by the storm for its ability to really mimic the way humans write and communicate. So it's it's pretty close, but on deeper analysis you'll find some discrepancies
0: wow how can how this came up to be like 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 it is so like phenomenal the way the way you say it, but at some point someone must have gotten together with some people and say hmm let's come up with this how how was this created
1: Oh, goodness. I am talking about imposter syndrome. I don't have the expertise that goes through the history of artificial intelligence and and GPT, but I do know, you know, this is something that people scientists and researchers have been working on for decades. I mean, back in, I think the 1950s or 60s, there was the Eliza chatbots of one of the very first chatbots to that could respond to very simple requests. And, you know, Throughout history, there have been attempts to create something that mimics human intelligence. Again, artificial intelligence, the keyword there is artificial. It's trying to get close to what humans can do. Um, But it wasn't really until recently with the massive computing power that we have and the access to big data, like being able to pull 300 billion words from the Internet, that uh, scientists and researchers have really been able to advance this field to the point that it seems close to mimicking human intelligence. And there's a whole history behind the GPT, which is generative pre trained transformer and how that came about. But that was really the big turning point in the most recent um, turning points in artificial intelligence because of the way that it worked was so different from prior attempts throughout history.
0: Wow. That's fascinating. So, what would you say how ChatGPT is transforming the traditional learning landscapes in schools and universities?
1: Well, I think it still remains to be seen whether it's gonna be truly transformative. I think every so often a big technology or something comes out like massive open online courses, even Wikipedia, the internet, smartphones come out and there's this big panic of do we really need schooling? (laughs) <laughs> with these technologies, with this access to information. And here we are today still, you know, having formal schooling. And in many cases, a lot of teachers still teach without technology or with very limited technology in very old-fashioned ways, even though we lived in this very technology-rich world. So I don't know uh, how much influence chat GPT will have because it's still in its infancy. It just came out in November 2022. But it is one of the first tools that I have seen many educators stop and question their role as the educator. Some asking, you know, is my job now obsolete? (laughs) And, you know, maybe it is obsolete if your sole job is disseminating information that students, you know, summarize and report back to you. But there really is so much more to education than just providing students factual information and um, it, there's this human component, creative component, designing uh, diversified and individualized learning experiences. So I, I think there's great benefit in just the tool getting educators to think differently about their practice. And often when I see how educators are thinking differently, it's going back to, um, you know, evidence-based best practices like student-centered learning Um, providing multiple means of engagement, uh, which is one of the universal design for learning principles, uh, higher order thinking skills, things that ChatGPT can't do. So that makes me really hopeful to see how educators are starting to shift their practice towards, okay, well, if an AI tool can respond to this prompt of compare and contrast Romeo and Juliet and the Great Gatsby, why do my students need to do that? And so then you can think about, well, maybe it can respond to that prompt, but what can students do next? You know, Can they apply their knowledge? Can they write their own remix of the two books together to present the themes that they found throughout? Uh, can they design a, a podcast series or a, you know, a video? about you know their findings, things that Chat GPT can't do yet is this application of knowledge or creation of new media and products. Um, so that that has left me very hopeful. But to be honest, the biggest changes I've seen is kind of like a change in the syllabus policy around academic integrity. <laughs> so that's I think it's a, you know, we're taking baby steps right now is how do we make these small changes and have conversations with students about these tools. And I'm hopeful that the changes will continue to uh, you know, shift the way teaching and learning happens, but that still remains to
0: be seen. I see. Uh, Tori, what are some of the most innovative things you have seen with either schools or uh, higher ed uh, institutions uh, of the use of ChatGPT?
1: So in the cult of pedagogy, Blog, which I love to follow for my own professional learning. They talk about ChatGPT as an example machine. And often, you know, teachers spend a lot of time trying to come up with examples to help make learning concrete and help students really understand something. And the blog that I read was just a really innovative way of quickly generating different examples that help students, you know, analyze or critique or think differently about a topic. Um, And then also uh, Dr. Brian Alexander and his blog wrote about the use of ChatGPT for role-playing scenarios and simulations. And that's something that I think we could definitely bring more into education is thinking about, let's not just explore the American Revolution by memorizing, you know, who the key players were and what the impacts were. But let's talk about, let's role-play what might have happened if this scenario changed or if this, you know, was different in history and having kind of, you know, conversations. Um, And then the third example that really interested me was uh, Tate and colleagues who wrote an article about ChatGPT talked about it as a teachable agent. And so we often think about ChatGPT as, you know, just disseminate information. You go and ask it to summarize or explain, but it is a chat bot. So, you know, having students have to teach chat GPT, um, you know, string theory, for example, or I tried to teach it about my research on professional learning networks, and I had to really think about what prompts I would give it and how I would produ- provide different information. And then it responded back. So I would say, here's what a professional learning network is. And then it's like, yeah, here's what I understand of it. And it would ask me a question to follow up. And then go, we we... Me and the, the artificial intelligence, I'm not gonna humanize this technology, would go back and forth. And it was, you know, it really helped like clarify my thinking around the concept. And you know, anytime we teach, we have to like deepen our thinking to be able to share with others. So those are kind of three really innovative uses that I've heard about so far with Chat GPT in education.
0: Beautiful. Thank you so much. Uh, the question of probably Uh, most of my teacher friends is this. So thinking about plagiarism, what are the ethical considerations to be considered when implementing chatbots in education and how can we ensure that they are used ethically and responsibly?
1: Oh, that's a big question. And I think, you know, it's not just students who are turning to chat GPT to plagiarize or use it for ghost writing. I think as I mentioned, with it being one of the most advanced chatbots to date that can mimic human human writing, people in every career who use writing in some way or another, whether it's grant writing or marketing materials, social media posts, are trying to figure out what it means to use this tool ethically and legally. And we end up with some unethical examples like uh, Coco, the emotional uh, supports chat. Uh, service that you would type in um, you know, questions around emotional or mental health and humans would respond. They swapped out humans for chat GPT, but didn't tell users. And then they did after the fact and users of course felt deceived and tricked. And then big media outlets like CNET, which published more than 70 articles generated by AI without telling readers that they were generated by AI. And now we have politicians who are writing bills about AI, but asking ChatGPT to write the bills for them. So I think we, we have to have these conversations with students at every grade level, um, especially in higher education before they get into their careers around what does it mean to write uh, and what counts as plagiarism and what doesn't in the era of AI writing tools like ChatGPT. And having democratic conversations is, I think, the best route to go. Like bring students' voices in because I've seen articles where students examine chat GPT and say, well, hey, this is plagiarizing or this isn't right or I wouldn't feel happy if my peers used this and I didn't have access to it. So I think having some conversations with students around these critical questions around what counts as plagiarism and what doesn't and when when can and should you use the tool Like in my classes, like I encourage students to use the tool if it will help clarify their thinking, improve their communication skills, um, support with creative thinking. But if they are going to copy anything word for word directly from ChatGPT to... And currently my syllabus, it says to cite it, but I think I'm gonna rethink that because ChatGPT is not, you know, it's not a source. It's pulling words together from a whole bunch of sources. So. I still have to have that conversation with students around should they cite ChatGPT or go and try and find the original sources to cite. So I think we're at this moment in time where you can kind of go one way or another. You can say, let's ban the tool, let's use plagiarism detectors. And that creates a whole sorts of obstacles, especially for students with disabilities and language and learning um, and communication struggles, traditionally marginalized students, which will create more surveillance and monitoring or we can, you know, go the more uh, student-centered, democratic route of having conversations and building academic integrity policies into classes and syllabi around what it means so that when they do get into careers, hopefully they don't end up like COCO or CNET, just, you know, having ChatGPT do the work of humans without letting others know. Um, so that's, that's my hope It's just to encourage educators and students to really have some critical conversations around this topic.
0: Beautiful. Thank you so much. And uh, if if life was a movie and you could fast forward to the future, what do you think uh, chatbots and ChatGPT are going to be? How are they going to be evolving throughout the years? I know these are guessing, but uh, what is your best guess?
1: I mean, I can barely think like the next year what ChatGPT will do. I know that uh, GPT-4 is supposed to be released relatively soon. So we're on GPT-3, which is ChatGPT. And GPT-4 is, you know, exponentially more advanced in terms of the parameters that it's built on. And I'm, I'm already thinking like ChatGPT is close to mimicking human writing. What will GPT-4 come out? And that's within the next year. So how do we think about the future where it will, you know, these types of artificial intelligence tools will continue to be programmed to be more intelligent and more human-like. And my my best hope is a world where humans and AI interact in ways that improve human life, human productivity, human thinking and communication. And I've already seen that. I saw a recent research article of, um, you know, professionals in different fields who have turned a chat GPT to, support their writing, and it actually improved productivity, especially for individuals who struggled with language and communication and writing and really decreased that gap in productivity in workers already in these fields. So I can imagine in the future where, um, you know, it'd be great to see kind of a decrease in gaps between whether it's the digital divide or knowledge gaps where AI could really come in and help reduce like equities. Of course, currently AI is known for exacerbating inequities, which is a whole nother issue. Um, But I, I try to remain on the cautiously optimistic side that maybe humans are turning to AI to boost their productivity, their creativity, the way that they think and interact and learn.
0: Beautiful. Thank you so much. I feel illuminated with my questions at ChatGPT. Let's talk about the productivity of your wisdom. As you know, uh, being successful in any field, people need to be on top of their productivity. But this looks so different for so different for, for everyone. What does it mean to you to get organized to ensure that you still can do like traveling and all this fun stuff that you do?
1: Oh, time management is something I learned, you know, very early on. And in in college, I was working like three different jobs. I was on the track and field team, which was about 20 hours a week of practice and competitions. And then I was doing a full time class load. And my resident advisor job alone was another 20 hours a week of work. And I had to learn very quickly to keep on top of all of that and maintain my high GPA too you know, figure out time management. And so back then I had uh, three calendars. I had my iMac calendar, my Apple calendar. That is where I put all my events. So resident advisor events, all my work events, anything, because that little reminders pop up on your computer. And then I get the student planner every semester. And I would, as soon as I got all my syllabus for all my classes, I'd go through and I'd map out the entire semester for every single class of what was due, when you know starting with end and working all the way back and then for daily i had a little whiteboard and so each week i would write out on the whiteboard my seven days of the week and what i had to do every single day between those two calendars between homework and events and everything else going on and it was like such joy to mark things off my whiteboard just go and be like done did that one um and that was what I had to do to keep on top of everything, and it has continued today. You know, I still have I have two calendars. I have my iCal calendar where that I keep most of my life organized, but I have a work calendar for uh, a lot of you know webinars and Zoom meetings, and all of those things are on my Google calendar. Um, and then I use things like Google Keep um, to kind of my digital age to do list where I can check things off. And um, then, like, new tools, like the snooze feature in Gmail, which I just discovered maybe a couple months ago, has been a lifesaver because I get overwhelmed with too many emails. And sometimes I'll just move those emails to events on calendars, and that's a whole extra step. And once I discover the snooze feature where it's like, okay, I don't don't have time to get to writing this project for another month, um, I will just snooze this till then. So I have a whole bunch of email snooze that come up here and there. But it really clears my mind between the two calendars and the different tools that I use so that when I do try to fall asleep at night, I'm not racing through what are the things I forgot to do or I need to do this week. And so having these different tools has been really essential for, you know, clarity of thinking. Um, And my favorite tip, uh, because a lot of graduate students ask me, like, how do you how are you so productive? is that when I do map out my calendar, so I have a good sense of how long it'll take me to write something. Um, Mm. And so I might put like three hours on Wednesday morning to write chapters, you know, one and two of a book that I'm focusing on. If I finish that faster than the three hours, then it's free time. (laughs) Like I don't, then throw in a whole bunch of extra like, okay, well, now I can get to email now I can do this. No, it's like now I can get out and go for a walk or like have a little treat or, you know, get out and about. And that motivates me to be more efficient and productive and not just say, okay, three hours, I'll just check some email for a bit. I'll do this for a bit and kind of drag it on. It's like, no, I sit down and I get through what I can. Sometimes it takes all three hours, which is a bit disappointing. Um, but if I do finish early, you know, I count that as a treat and that helps me stay on top of things.
0: And when you write, uh, like do you enclose yourself in a place, you put music, you put candles, like what what does it that work behind the scenes looks like?
1: Well, I write at home, which is to me the the easiest place to write because it's quiet um and there's no interruptions. I take my phone and put it on silence and flip it upside down so I don't get distracted. I make sure not to check my email. Although to be fair, in that those little treats—I don't know why I consider email a treat—but it's a it's a mental break. So I might write for 45 minutes, and if I get stuck, just pop open email and be like, I can respond to a couple of these. Um, but yeah, and I have like a like 30-inch monitor, <laughs> so I have you know the ability to put two documents side by side. And that is absolutely essential. I try to write on my laptop and it it takes me like twice as long because you're flipping between, especially with like research and literature reviews, you might have like 30 tabs of articles open and then like you're writing um, or often I'll have the same document open on two different tabs. And I'm trying to go back and forth of like, what did I say earlier in this journal article? Or I need to add in a reference and rather than losing my place here. Um, So yeah, so it all takes place, you know, at home working on writing, I do writing, you know, a lot. (laughs) That's a huge part of my job, whether it's research articles, or, you know, blog posts, or news articles, trying to get my work out there. Um, And that's, that's it. No music, no other distractions. I have noise canceling headphones, my AirPods, and those little breaks that I mentioned that I built in are essential. And uh, I have my super adorable Chihuahua who is behind me in this virtual <laughs> background, and she's sometimes the break that I need. Is like, okay, I need to take her outside. So I'll let me get up from this chair, move around, go stand in the sunlight for a bit, and then bring her back inside. Okay, I'm ready to sit down and start writing again.
0: Beautiful. Let me uh, let me ask you. I'm sure with all of the all these years of experience, uh, what lessons have you learned in terms of dissertation writing? Uh, for me, it was like for me, it was like the most monumental thing I did. And then when years passed, you're like, well, ah, that wasn't really that bad. Uh, what advice do you give to your students who are working on their dissertations?
1: Oh, goodness. In terms of writing, yeah. I mean, it's a lot of what I've been talking about in terms of mapping out what they need to write and when. And so I try to set deadlines when I meet with my doctoral students of, you know, okay, in the next month we're going to meet you know, one month from now, I would like you to have this chapter ready and sent to me in three weeks. And then I try to talk to them about, okay, you really need to map this out on your calendar, what it means to write this 50 page chapter. That means you're writing, you know, like 10 to 15 pages a week or more. Um, And then to prepare for that, you need to do some like literature review. So maybe start with a couple of days of that. So I try to help them map it out. But you know, every, every doctoral students, myself included, struggles with figuring out how to make sure that they're productive on a, something like a dissertation, which can be 300 plus pages, especially in the field of education, can be really daunting. And and just thinking of that task, and then the data analysis, I think, is where a lot of uh, people get stuck, is they collect so much data, they don't know where to begin. And I often am like, well, think about, you know, the, the structure. And so you've come up with, you've got your literature review, you've got your methods, you have your three research questions, organize each research question into a chapter or use those research questions to guide you. You know, so if you have that initial organization and structure built into the writing um, and then you just break it down into pieces. All right, let's start with research question one. Let's look at the data focused on that. Now let's pare that down so we can write a couple pages in the start and then we'll like expand on that. So I think it really is kind of, narrowing things down and chunking and not getting overwhelmed with, oh my gosh, I have to write 300 pages, but more just let's dive in and and focus and, you know, pull apart this data here and think about how to write about that and then just take it one step at a time.
0: I see. Do you use any uh, software to organize your bibliography? (laughs) I feel like I should and
1: being an ed tech specialist and I have looked at Zotero and Mendeley and um, RefWorks different tools and I I don't. (laughs) It's probably someday I I will but I I do the very much you know I write not for a dissertation but when I'm writing journal articles which can be up to like 60 pages is I'll write and then um, I'll either put the citation in as I'm writing or I literally just in like parentheses write all caps citation and then I, so that's where I, uh, you know, help myself from not getting stuck is I get stuck on, you know, c- citation and references and then copy editing, like going back through and just editing, I can do that for hours. And so I just, to myself, tell myself, okay, I have to sit down and I have to write this method section, I'm not going to get stuck searching for citations or focusing on, uh, you know, specifics in grammar, and then I'll come back and do that at a later point. Uh, And that's kind of my method of just, you know, making sure that I get writing done. And then it's not super great towards the end of the paper. When I go to submit and have to go find all like hundred references. (laughs) And, um, but when you start writing on the same topic, the cool thing is I can find my old articles and copy and paste a lot of references and I'm still finding new ones, but that's kind of a low stakes thinking task. So sometimes toward the end, it's just like nice to, that's a good time to put on music and just go do the APA style citation for the, you know, 50 to hundred that I need to add. But I, yeah, I'm sure there's a much better, more productive strategy with using those tools or even like Google docs has citation manager built in. I just don't trust them as well to do it correct with APA formatting as they should. I've seen Google scholar citations. Um, So that's, that's kind of my concern with those
0: tools. Do you write using Google Docs or do you have a different software?
1: Yeah, Google Docs, and especially because I do a lot of collaborative projects. So Dr. Carpenter and Dr. Kretka, who are different states and we've re- we've written for years, um, we'd often just pull up at the time, I think it was Google Meet, and we'd be talking, but we'd all be on the same documents. And since then, uh, I've collaborated with colleagues near and far. And we're always using Google Docs because we can all be on at the same time. We can comment on one another's, um, you know, I love the suggested edits feature where we're going in and revising, remixing. So I have written on Google Docs ever since then. It's really helped with collaboration.
0: Beautiful. And finally, um, any other interests you might have when you are not Professor Truss and and you're not uh, into this work?
1: Oh, so, you know, as I mentioned at the start, uh, sports and traveling are my key interests. I love watching sports and I love playing sports. I am going to go watch the Premier League soccer games this morning after this (laughs) is over. And I grew up playing all sorts of sports. And even in college, I was on the track and field team. In graduate school, I would do like seven intramural sports every week, one every night. That was a different sport. Um, And at University of Massachusetts Amherst, faculty are allowed to do intramurals with the students. So Mm. it's been a really fun to do flag football and two ball soccer and kickball and everything with the students and get out and about in the community. That's one of the best ways to build relationships and meet people, especially when you move somewhere. Um, But you know, I don't mind watching sports, even though unfortunately, I'm a San Diego fan. And Chargers and Padres are just not good, but I still like that's in my heart, I have to watch and cheer for them. And then travel to me is just, you know, experiencing new places, new cultures, new foods. I've been to all seven continents. I absolutely love to explore the world because we have, you know, this is our one life to really get out and explore and we have such an incredible world environmentally and with all the people in it. So those are really my two passions outside of work.
0: Beautiful. Thank you so much. This has been such a great conversation. I have learned quite a lot. Uh, Any last thoughts for the listeners and viewers of the show?
1: Um, I think, you know, the most important thing in careers and productivity is, is finding people who can support you, who mentor you um, throughout whatever career or even just in life. And I've been so fortunate. There's, um, I called, you know, some of my colleagues and friends, you know, my adopted colleagues, you know, they're not in my field, but they have brought me into, you know, virtual lunches or get togethers. And um, some of my friends, you know, who have helped me introduce me to new friends to make even more friends. So like, if you can find people who, you know, are there for you, no matter what, who can support you, who can be a sounding board, who can tell you when to say no, and actually listen to them, that's, um, you know, one of the most important things I think anyone should think about in terms of careers and productivity.
0: Beautiful. Thank you so much, Tori. Enjoy your Premier League and have a wonderful <laughs> Saturday.
1: Will do. Thank you.
0: Take care. Thank you for listening to Wisdom and Productivity, the podcast of Dr. Eparin Martinez. Chulu And as of that production,
1: chill out.